นะโมตัสสะภะคะวะโตอะระหะโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนะโมตัสสะภะคะวะโตอะระหะโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะพุทธังธัมมังสังขังนามาสามิ
um, there can be this sort of deterministic or fatalistic attitude, or it's, it's my karma or it's their karma, or, as though there was some kind of fixed, rigid structure, a fixed uh, cause and effect uh, structure that was so rigid and, and, and unchangeable. So I feel that one of the, the most helpful things in terms of Buddha's, the Buddha's teaching and that is really worthy of reflection is uh, that even though there are strong tendencies to have that idea the, uh, of uh, fixity of fate, uh, of, of uh, a sort of uh, an unavoidable karmic consequences, um, or that the reason why we experience what we do in this moment is because of some actions in a previous lifetime. The, the Buddha pointed very clearly to the, the um, from his own perspective and, and looking around at uh, the natural world is that uh, um, the, uh, the the effects of our individual actions are only one element that play into what we experience in the present moment, and I feel it's helpful to understand that that, uh, that and the word karma as it now takes shape in English. Uh, it's really a shorthand for kama, which means action, uh, the Pali word kama, or even the Sanskrit word karma, just means action, it means doing, uh, uh, deliberate chose, uh, chosen action, kama. And uh, vipaka means the result of, of those actions. So often we use the word karma um, as a shorthand for kama vipaka, action and its result. Um, so that, that's the way I'll be using it, uh, even though I think the Oxford English Dictionary uh, defines karma as some kind of fixed fate or destiny uh, that um, is unavoidable. So that uh, so there's there's two things in, in this consideration I feel it's really helpful to, to reflect on and to take to heart. One is that, uh, that the results of, of individual action are only one element in uh, in making up what we experience uh, in our in our lives in each moment, but also uh, most importantly, um, nothing is fixed. Uh, the the the, uh, the Buddha spoke of the uh, say the the fact that our choices uh, make a difference and we can make choices and if it wasn't possible for the choices to be made if if everything was predetermined then uh, practicing uh, dhamma enlightenment would be impossible liberation would be completely impossible there would be uh, a, a a fixed system like that you know, is is uh, say um, not something that could result in liberation from that from that system, yeah. uh, and so the Buddha made it very clear in numbers of teachings that uh, the choices can be made, and those choices make a difference. So, firstly, just to, to briefly speak about the the different influences, uh, what we have in the, in the teachings mentioned here and there in various suttas, sort of woven together as a as a more formalized system in the later commentaries, but they, these um, principles pop up in various different forms in different uh, different teachings of the Buddha, are what is called uh, the niyama, or the, the five niyama, which is, means uh, laws or principles of nature. So this is, a, a, say, describing uh, in, in outline all the different things that go up to, uh, go together to make up this moment. So the first is, uh, is utu niyama. Utu literally means the weather. Uh, but it's uh, really the laws of physics and chemistry. So, for example, um, I experience the force of gravity. I can feel the, the, my my body being pulled to the uh, the surface of the earth. 
but I feel it, it, it's experienced here, the sensations of the body having weight are felt here, but I was not involved in creating the force of gravity. Uh, I did not decide on, uh, I was not in, in a discussion that decided upon uh, how uh, one mass would, would affect another mass uh, and so on and so forth. The weight of the electron or how uh, neutrons and protons work together. Those are completely non-personal aspects uh, of the universe, uh, but we experience the result of them. Um, so we are uh, we experience the way that physics and chemistry work the the laws of nature work in that respect so then the second one um, is bija niyama which is essentially bija means a seed so essentially means the laws of biology so again uh, i experience the need to breathe uh, i i like oxygen if my uh, if uh, if i'm alive uh, and then the body is uh, to stay alive, then oxygen is necessary to keep that that, uh, that uh, life going. It's part of the, the living system for a human being. So uh, that's how uh, aerobic respiration works. Because there's oxygen in the atmosphere, then certain uh, uh, say, um, uh, varieties of living being depend on that oxygen as a life source, as an energy source. And so aerobic respiration is very much part of all of our lives you know uh, not just for survival but also mindfulness of breathing you know the, there's a meditation method as well so that um is also a non-personal thing that the need to breathe the, the the laws of biology how we are born how the body grows up how uh, we need to eat food how we get energy from the food that we eat uh, all of this is part of Bijaniyama, the, the laws of biology. Even the way that we work together as a, as a human group, as a social animal, these are all parts of, of the biological realm. They're not personal. The way we, we bond with each other, the way we have hierarchies of, of elder and younger, senior and junior, you know, top dog, bottom dog in a, in a, in a pack of dogs. That's all, the, I would say, the part of bija niyama, the, the biological field. So we experience the results of those laws of, of biology simply by the fact of our birth. The third of the niyamas is kama niyama. So that is the, the law of, of cause and effect, of action, uh, deliberate willed action, uh, and the results that come from that action. So this is where uh, the choices that, we, that can be made make a difference. And this is where, uh, uh, say, the attention goes in our, in our human life and where we can most helpfully put most of our attention is onto uh, karma, the actions that we take, the words we choose to say, the things we choose to do, the places we choose to go, how we spend our time. That's all in the realm of, of karma, niyama, uh, and the laws of cause and effect. So a huge amount of the Buddha's teaching focuses on exactly that, that area of making skillful choices and seeing the, the good results, seeing what happens when unskillful choices are, are made uh, and no, uh, witnessing, uh, acknowledging the, the results uh, of that. Uh, so this is where uh, it's, it, seem, it seems most personal <laughs> and uh, things are, are very uh, sort of directly uh, felt and uh, say, uh, have, the, uh, uh, have the greatest impact on the, on the citta. 
But it also is important to see that even the laws of cause and effect, the uh, action and its results, w deliberate willed intentional action, and uh, its results are still a part of the natural order. We, we, we take those things very personally. We think, we think I choose, I feel, I do, I speak, I remember, um, and it seems very personal, but a lot of Buddhist meditation, insight meditation in particular, is geared at developing a perspective to see that even that which seems very personal and has our name sort of written deeply, <laughs> etched very deeply and firmly into particular actions and memories and, and uh, experiences, that is, uh, in its essence, is an appearance of things. It's not an absolute reality. So the other two niyamas, just to complete this, the set, are uh, chitta niyama, which is essentially the laws of psychology. So like, again, uh, how the mind works. This is not a personal choice. I, I, I was not involved in deciding how memory works or how imagination works or how the, the mind perceives uh, color, how it, how it uses uh, language, how it stores information how it uh, say, cultivates and develops wholesome qualities or unwholesome qualities. The, the laws of psychology, uh, again, they, the, these are uh, things that are experienced, how memory works or memory stops working, <laughs> how uh, we use language or how our mind interprets sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, the impact of, this, of the, the sensed world. Those are all jitta niyama, that just, uh, uh, they function according to the laws of psychology how the mind works, but they're not personal, how that, how that all works uh, and the, uh, the, say the, the process of, of experiencing in the, in the mental realm, these are not personally created, they're not uh, uh, individual uh, issues. And then lastly, Dhammaniyama, which uh, uh, as one can tell, it's going from a, the most sort of, um, a sort of particular physical aspect of, of nature to the most sort of refined and transcendent aspects of nature. So Dhammaniyama is essentially the, the fabric of, of reality on the ultimate level, so that it, um, beyond even mind and mental activity, how the, uh, the, the universe works, how the, uh, what so constitutes the nature of the unconditioned, the, un, the unborn, the uncreated, the, the transcendent uh, attributes of Dhamma itself. These are also non-personal. These are not individually created or, or uh, sort of something that is to do with our own uh, choices, but rather it's a part of the fabric of reality. So in this moment, in each moment, all of us uh, experience the results of those five principles all working together. So that uh, along with the, the results of personal choices or the or feeling the effects of other people's choices, like say, speaking about the uh, oppressive nature of say the white male dominated societies around uh, the world, um, the choices that have been made in terms of uh, uh, invading and occupying other countries, uh, leeching them of their resources, kidnapping their people, uh, sending them overseas and enslaving people. There's the, the choices uh, that are made by individuals and, and also much more locally, just the choosing to sit down by your machine to listen to this Sunday afternoon webcast, uh, myself choosing these words, which, uh, uh, which words come to mind as being useful and appropriate to convey certain uh, principles, certain, uh, certain uh, aspects of, of understanding. 
along the whole spectrum. Um, <clears throat> yeah, the, the array of things that we experience in each moment, whether it's uh, as aspects of nature, the results of our own choices, the results of other people's choices, in this moment it all arrives here. There's the, 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 the physical world, the biological world, the psychological world, there's the results of, of action, our own actions, other people's actions, uh, there's the, the law of Dhamma, the, the nature of the conditioned and the unconditioned, uh, and the relationship between those two, it all meets uh, here in this moment. And so that what we can say is rather than things being predetermined, we can say that everything, this moment is preconditioned through the coming together of, of the Big Bang and the physical world, the laws of physics, chemistry, uh, of, of karma and vipaka, of psychology and, uh, and the ultimate reality of things. It all arrives in this moment exactly like this in each of our lives, in each of our, our minds. So then, uh, there, in terms of spiritual training, the task is to receive that, that array of different influences, uh, acknowledging what has come from our own personal choices uh, and also what has come just from the, the workings of, of the natural order, to, to be able to be open-hearted, to have, uh, in a sense, a, a radical acceptance, a loving-kindness, uh, an open-heartedness to all of that. In this moment, it's exactly like this. The physical world, the, uh, the biological world, the mental world, uh, the personal world, the transcendent world, it's all uh, meeting together in this moment exactly this way, here, now, for each of us in its own unique fashion. And so part, you know, part one of practicing Dhamma is having that open-heartedness to receive that whole array of influences. Part two is then what is done with that. And so this is really where the practice of mindfulness and wisdom, satipanya, comes into play. That With a heart open to the way things are, you know, this is the way it is, it's exactly this way in this moment. So <laughs> having uh, that receptivity then uh, the part two of practicing Dhamma is then relating to that uh, array of, um, of experiences or those patterns of experience uh, bringing mindfulness and wisdom to, to that. And so that is what guides action. Is there something to be done or not to be done? Is there something to be said or not to be said? What, uh, what uh, can um, uh, be done with respect to the, the way that the universe is, the world is, in this moment, that can lead to the greatest benefit for this being, for other beings, to to lead towards what is wholesome and beneficial for for society and the the, the living realm to the extent possible. Uh, and so, uh, I often like to reflect: this is the, really the, the two-part process of practicing dhamma, you know, receiving the effects of past causes and their, their kind of indescribably complex and intricate. Um, uh, interdependent uh, nature, receiving the the uh, the effects of past causes, like this, <laughs> and then in this moment, planting the causes for skillful effects in the future, and that the way that those skillful causes are planted is essentially through mindfulness and wisdom, and then that uh, that is way in a way uh, using the qualities of the good heart uh, of that, letting the 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 dhamma. Uh, in a way, speak through our actions and our words and our attitudes so that uh, uh, the more fully uh, the heart, the mind is attuned to, to Dhamma, to reality, to nature, 
and the, and the more that that quality of mindfulness and wisdom is enabled to to function in an unobstructed fashion, then the more uh, these these lives of ours can be guided towards being of benefit uh, to uh, to ourselves, to others, and that we're going to be, uh, say naturally inclined towards what is harmless what is honest what is uh, what is noble what is liberating what is supportive to to the good and to to well-being of, of uh, the uh, the living world other human beings the human society and to, to the world at large so those are a few opening reflections on uh, kama and vipaka and um, uh, how things are the way they are uh, i'm sure there's a few questions that will arise for that but uh, you got you got one more week to come up with your questions so both local and and remote um so please do freely uh, ask if uh, if you like so other questions that have been sent in um this uh, this week um the print is a bit small this time uh, so is there a point in one's practice where the desire to ask questions lessens due to a growing trust and faith in the Buddha Dhamma, i.e. there is just knowing without a need to question as much? I noticed that early on in my own practice the mind was filled with questions, yet now, if a question pops up, there's more of a sense that I already know the answer and don't need to rely on my teachers as much as I used to. It's like I learned from a, from a mechanic how to change the oil in the car, and maybe it's time to trust I can change the oil in my, on my own without relying so much on the mechanic's instruction. Thanks for your thoughts on this tangent. Lumpur, think, uh, last question, I promise. <laughs> uh, so, uh, good question, I would say. And um, yeah, this, uh, uh, what comes to mind in relationship to that is... Uh, uh, a comment um, when I, I was living in in Thailand, um, I couldn't speak very much Thai. I was it was very uh, poor understanding of the language, uh, and I lived most of my time at uh, Wat Pananachat, which was about um, f five miles, about seven kilometers away from the main monastery where Lumpur Cha lived. And um, but I did have the chance to go and spend a bit of time over there once in a while, and uh, and sitting um, uh, usually under Ajahn Chah's kuti, where he would uh, receive people. It was like a little open area. He would sit on a wicker bench uh, uh, at one end of the area under his kuti, and people would gather around and, and ask questions, often for hours and hours and hours. And uh, on one occasion, um, there was one or two other Western monks there who could translate. Very helpfully, <laughs> and uh, on one occasion, after being there for uh, some time, this is as I'm remembering the the, uh, the incident. Um, somebody made the comment to to Lumpur Chao, "Yeah, it's it's amazing, Lumpur. We've been here for you know two or three hours, three or four hours, and no matter how many questions people ask, or, or what the people, all the different things that people are asking about, whether it's problems in the family life, kind of difficulties with money, whether it's uh, people um, uh, asking meditation questions uh, amongst the uh, the nuns or the monks in the in the sangha here, you know, you you ha seem to have this way of uh, of you." you open up a conversation and somehow you get the person to answer their own question uh, yeah how, how do you do that 
uh, and I, of course, not being able to understand Thai, I couldn't, um, I, I couldn't really have followed how that dynamic worked myself. But you could see that Lumpur would, would engage with people and have a conversation with them, and how that, that, kind, of that kind of dynamic took shape where they, the person would, in a way, be led to their own understanding. They'd find themselves sort of coming to the uh, a kind of a, a, a useful, valid conclusion themselves, and would, oh, thank you, Lumpur. And um, so rather than him just sort of spelling out an answer, he would, he seemed, he, uh, and as this person was remarking on, he seemed to be able to help people to answer their own questions. And so this, this person was saying, how do you do that? That's, that's kind of amazing. Are you sort of reading their minds? Or, or how do you, you know, are you kind of aware that they already know what the answer is and you're sort of um, going to give them the clue how to find it? And then uh, Lumpur Cha made this very interesting comment, uh, again, that was translated uh, and, uh, to me at the time. And he said, uh, if a person didn't already know the answer to the question, they couldn't have asked the question in the first place. So uh, when somebody asks a question, you just have to help them to go back to where the question came from, and that's where they find the answer. And when he, he said that, you could tell people going, hmm, <laughs> how does that work? But I thought it was a, it was very uh, very insightful, very interesting, and also how he'd spent so much time in dialogue with people, and also found out over the years what really helps people. Because if you're just sort of sitting literally on the high seat and you're just delivering answers, um, you know, it's uh, like an answering machine. You know, <laughs> push here and you get a you get your sort of dumber response, like talking to Siri on your iPhone. Like, Ajinaro, uh, what's the answer to this Dhamma question? Siri, tell me, what's the meaning of life? Um, uh, you know, that uh, uh, Lumpur Chah found that rather than him just spelling things out and explaining uh, what his understanding was, that it really helped an individual far more to, to sort of discover things for themselves. And also, in that way, they were able to, uh, say, uh, learn to use their own wisdom and to trust their, uh, their own wisdom, which I feel is, is uh, very, very helpful. Yeah. Also, um, I think the, uh, uh, just as you were, whoever was uh, asking this question, uh, that, uh, as he was, was saying, that it's um, uh, through the, the development of, of Dhamma practice and watching your own mind, um, that things do become more familiar, and whereas we can, we can easily infantilize ourselves, if, if that's the right word to use. We we can make ourselves weak. Say, oh, I'm I'm just a student. I don't know anything. I'm just uh, you know I don't really understand this. I'm not an expert. I haven't read the Pali Canon. I haven't meditated that much. What do I know? Or, or the, the Ajahn, the person up in the high seat, the the authority. The, they know everything. So. We can, we can uh, in a way, hide our own light or ignore our own light uh, and sort of impart that, that goodness or wisdom or, or the source of knowledge and truth somewhere else. We, and sometimes it can be more comfortable for us to be in a sort of weak, uh, childlike position and, and, and put the authority somewhere else. But the whole, uh, not just what Lumpur Chah would do, but also the, 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 um, the thrust of the Buddha's teaching is to help us to be a light unto ourselves, to be a, a, an island unto ourselves, to be our own authority. And uh, so in the, say, in the um, Kalama Sutta, which is probably one of the most significant and influential teachings, particularly in terms of bringing Dhamma to the West and into the, the realm of skeptical materialism, 
um, where the, in the Kalama Sutta, then the, the Buddha goes through this, this village of uh, Kesaputta, and the, the people there are very de de uh, keen, dedicated spiritual practitioners, and they, they ask the Buddha, um, yeah, we, we're very sincere, we want to practice in a, in a good way and develop our spiritual lives, but all these different yogis come through here, different sannyasins and yogis and gurus, teachers, acharyas, and they all seem to say something different. And, and each one of them says, I'm right, and all the other ones are wrong. So how do we know who to trust? You know, how do we know what's reliable? And then the Buddha gives this very uh, interesting collection of, of like 10 criteria. Uh, and he says, uh, you shouldn't believe some teaching just because it's handed down to you from your parents or your ancestors. You shouldn't believe it just because it's, it's something that's written in the holy books or it's sort of recited by by spiritual, um, uh, uh, from spiritual authorities. You shouldn't believe it just because it's logical or hammered out by deductive or inductive reasoning. You shouldn't believe it just because all the other people around you believe it. But uh, rather, uh, you should listen, take things in, try them out, and then whatever leads to benefit for yourself and for others, then take it and use it. If you see that it leads to harmony between yourself and others, it leads to peace, towards freedom, towards contentment, take it and use it. If you see that by following that it leads to confusion, to alienation, to more anxiety, division, argument, difficulty, then leave it aside. And, uh, and so that he, right in that teaching, it's, uh, he's saying, in a sense, one of the very almost unique, um, uh, say, spiritual teachers or teachers of, founders of a world religion that said, don't believe me. <laughs> said, don't believe someone who's in a position of spiritual authority just because they say that. And, uh, and Lumpur Cha often quoted that uh, very regularly, or when uh, the, the Buddha was sitting next to, to Venerable Sariputta giving a Dhamma talk. At the end of the talk, he turned to Sariputta and said, Sariputta, have you heard me give this teaching before? And Sariputta said, Venerable Sir, no, I haven't. And, he said, and the Buddha said, do you believe that it's true? And then Sariputta said, not yet, Venerable Sir. And the dynamic is that you know, here you have a great spiritual guru and his chief disciple sitting there in front of a whole assembly, and the chief disciple says to the guru, you know, I don't believe you, Venerable Sir. <laughs> so it can seem like a kind of outrageous, disrespectful, rude uh, way to behave. Um, and then the Buddha goes on to say, well, why is that Sariputta? And then Sariputta said, well, because I haven't had the chance to test it out and find uh, and see it for myself. And then the Buddha said, good, good, Sariputta. Well done, this is, you know, Sariputta is wise. You know. And Lumpur Cha quoted that encounter. It's a sort of a blend of a, a couple of different encounters that you find in the teachings. And uh, Lumpur Cha used to quote that over and over and over. That uh, said, don't believe something just because it's there in the scriptures or coming from an authority or because it makes logical sense or some eloquent uh, pundit, some kind of authoritative speaker you know, puts it into, into sort of clear, logical words. Don't believe it, but take it, use it, and see, uh, see for yourself. And then your knowledge is coming from a direct experience. So similarly, uh, with the, this question about trusting your own knowledge, that yeah, yeah, yes, I, I do know how to change the oil in my car. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I have watched my mind for the last number of years. I, I do see how this works. So I would encourage that kind of trusting, having confidence in, in your own insight. and. Uh, a, uh, and seeing that is a, a skillful, a wholesome direction for for the practice to take, because if you're always dependent on on the um, affirmation by an outside source or a teacher saying, yeah, "Well done, you've got it right," <laughs> then uh, 
that there's uh, a we're disempowering uh, our own our own jitta, our own our own heart, and it, essentially. The purpose of the practice is for for the heart, the mind, to, to wake up to its own reality, and to to uh, to say trust that source of truth and wisdom is within us. is is the very fabric of of our own heart, our own mind is the very source of of truth and reality. And to to use the practice to to uh, to to see that, to know that, and to to live from that basis. So next one. Uh, thank you for the energy, clarity of thought and words when sharing your knowledge and insight in your many Dhamma talks. Listening to them across the Atlantic rejuvenates and inspires my practice. Questions. Being the parent of a toddler, I would like to do what I can to help make the path to liberation more easily accessible should they choose it. Cognitively, I understand children are unable to process the deeper teachings until they are seven. I would agree. Yeah. Until then, I hope uh, to guide them towards observing the five precepts. It's good intention. In order to minimize confusion, but given the existence of human agreements, conventions, and their use in navigating this world, is there anything I can do, or refrain from doing, or saying, to make it easier to detangle human conventions from the truth? Is there anything you can suggest I do to encourage Pati Pati Puja, that's the, um, the, uh, the puja or the, um, the, the, the enacting of the practice from a young age. Uh, well, if it's a toddler or toddlers, um, that's a pretty young age, so that's sort of one or two years old, um, so uh, or maybe two or three years old, so uh, even language is not particularly um, uh, well-developed at that age, generally. Uh, I would say that the, the first thing is to, to be a good example. And that's really children learn from their parents. Also, um, the, I mean, I'm not a parent myself, of, uh, biologically. <laughs> Spiritually, I am. I've got about 35 or 40 children, <laughs> monastically. <laughs> but uh, uh, biologically, I don't have any. Um, and so I don't have a personal experience of bringing up a, a child. But uh, a couple of things that, that come to mind. First of all, being a good example. So even for a, a toddler, you know, who's one or two years old, do uh, they they know if you're upset? They they're there. They feel it if you're if you're angry. Uh, and what do you what do you do if you're if you're upset and you're angry? How do you act on that or speak on that? What do you do with that those angry feelings? If you're frustrated, if you are if you are bored, what do you do? How do you how do you act on that? If you are frightened, if you're anxious. Uh, what do you do about that? How do you work with that? Because uh, a child, particularly a toddler, they're like a sponge. They're soaking everything up. And so, not to be too intimidating, but they, they learn from everything you do and how you are. And so that um, uh, just, just this morning, uh, somebody uh, sent me a, um, a link to a, a new documentary about His Holiness the Dalai Lama. And uh, it was very interesting because he said that you know, his first spiritual influence with, uh, in, in many, many ways was his mother and his mother as a, a model of kindness and, uh, and generosity. And uh, that, that oh, several times during this, this documentary, he mentions her and speaks very directly and, and, and sort of, um, quite, um, quite warmly and, and with great gratitude and appreciation how powerfully his mother influenced him 
And so I feel that uh, I don't know whether this is a mother or a father speaking, either way, or <laughs> or a gender non-specific parent. Um, but uh, whatever one's, uh, whether uh, whether you're a mother, father, or anything, uh, any other way of defining it, if you're responsible for bringing up a, a child, then the way you are and the way you relate, particularly to um, difficult mind states, is going to have an enormous impact. So children learn by example. So if they know something painful has happened or they see that you've hurt yourself or something is difficult, if they see and they can feel and know, they can smell uh, how you handle that, uh, what, what, what do you do with those upset feelings? Uh, if, you're, if you're feeling impatient and frustrated, um, do you, uh, what, what do you do with that? Uh, and so that the, um, and, it, it, and it's not always the case you go, you're going to act in a perfect way, so that I feel one of the most beautiful things that can be done is if, say, you, there are moments where you are, you are impatient with the child, you, if you have an outburst, or like, you know, I've told you already, leave that alone. Uh, that uh, if you recognize I really lost it there, you know, uh, the, you know she's only two, um, and even though I told her, please don't touch that, you know, that was actually five hours ago, so why should she remember? You know, half, you know, the, 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 half a day has gone by, and for a two-year-old, that's, that's uh, an ocean of time. So, um, if you make a mistake like that, then to apologize and say, I'm terribly sorry, I, 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 just, sh I just shouted at you, I was, that was really cruel, unkind, and I feel really bad about having shouted at you, um, and so please accept my apology. And so that kind of um, humility and, uh, and, sort of, and closeness can, uh, in terms of not trying to always be perfect, or always be right, but uh, to be able to acknowledge your own shortcomings is uh, very important. Uh, again, I, I'm not a parent of, a, of, a, of any uh, children, uh, at least in this, in this lifetime. But also I feel one of the things that, um, that is, is very significant in, uh, in families, and I think is lost a lot in the West, is physical contact between the parents and the children. Just the, um, the kind of amount of time that uh, a parent is physically together with the child or, or in physical contact with, with their own children. And I think it makes a huge, I feel, and my experience is it makes a huge difference. And, and in the West, often there's a sort of physical remoteness and people are using um, sort of devices and structures and things for the, the child to be entertained or looked after. Or, uh, but the, the ordinary physical contact between the, the, the child and the parents it, uh, is an important thing to, to give those signals of the parent. Because as the Buddha put it, your parents, they are the model of their, they're the early deities. They model the Dhamma, really. They're present, they're reliable, they're the source of goodness, they're the source of food, <laughs> source of comfort, protection. So the parents or the parent is a model for Dhamma, for, for, the, for that quality of protection and support. And so um, the, that physical contact is, uh, and to, for the child to be able to, to, to feel you, to smell you, to, to be uh, having that kind of closeness, it can be giving that, yes, there is that which in the, which in the, in the universe which is reliable, that which is good, that which is a support. And then as the child grows up, then that gets transferred from the parent to spiritual qualities, uh, hopefully, eventually. 
Uh, and so uh, that uh, they they realize that the parents are fallible, but the Dhamma is not. You know, nature uh, is is infallible. Uh, the the laws of reality are infallible. Although dad and mom might be might be more, have more limitations. So that, but that kind of modeling of Dhamma for a parent and being there. Uh, I remember when I was in, um, before I was in Thailand, when I was first traveling in Southeast Asia, I spent a bit of time in Bali. And uh, one of the very interesting local, um, not, not really a custom, it's sort of a familial practice, is that the, uh, the, the child doesn't set foot on the ground for the, fo- the whole first year of, of their life. So they're carried, they're on the body of, of one of the parents or you know, auntie, uncle, sister, brother, you know, somebody. But the child's foot doesn't touch the ground until they're one year old. Uh, I don't know if that still carries on, but uh, I, was kind of, I was really in, in, interested uh, in this. And they have a ceremony where on the child's first birthday, the first time the child actually touches the earth, uh, they, they puts their foot on the ground. And uh, I'm not recommending that as a... <laughs> Well, how am I supposed to do that, Ajahn? Yeah, you, you, you don't know my kids. You know, they love to crawl and climb. You know, they're only six months old. Uh, so I'm not recommending this as or this should be adopted as a practice. But I felt uh, uh, it was very interesting to hear that that had evolved, and that that sense of of being on on the mother or on the a protective presence. Not literally, not touching the ground for a year, and then okay, now you're ready for the world and having a special ceremony in Bali. They have lots and lots of ceremonies, all kinds of different pujas. Um, but uh, I thought that was uh, that was probably in my guesswork would be based on the seeing the the wholesome effect of uh, and the quality of security and psychological well-being that comes from that sense of yes, you know, you are looked after, you are protected, you are fed, you are. You are loved, um, you are cared for, and so then that provides an extraordinary ground of confidence, of of, uh, of ease and trust. And uh, listening to His Holiness the Dalai Lama um, uh, this morning, watching the, the the documentary about him, yeah, there were three things that he he spoke about that he got from uh, from uh, being so close to his mother and being very impressed by his mother and by the family and growing uh, in his childhood growing up and that those were were trust you know, honesty and love so the the degree to which the child uh, sees that feels that knows that being manifested by the parent they they can trust the parent the parent is honest and the parent loves them um, then uh, that that provides an extraordinary um, sort of powerful basis for, for psychological well-being. Whether you introduce things like the Tooth Fairy or Father Christmas, <laughs> I don't know what country you're writing from or what your local customs might be, I leave that up to individual parents to, uh, to, to bring into the picture whether they have to then, at a certain point, uh, let the child realize that the, the Tooth Fairy is actually mum or dad or, uh, or that the Father Christmas is is um, is uh, uh, being channeled by their parents, but not not actually appearing down a, uh, a, a chimney. And so I leave that for individual families to, to work out. So the second question was stream entry. How does one know that one is a stream entrant if this was something realized in a previous lifetime, given that enlightenment is reached within seven lifetimes? Is it an innate sense of knowing which leads per- such persons towards the path of practice? Uh, 
seeking the teaching, even if born to a very different culture where no religion is practiced, a religion other than Buddhism is practiced. Uh, I think I responded to this almost identical question a week or two ago, so maybe you weren't listening then, or maybe you were. <laughs> maybe you're the same person, and you just wanted me to talk about it some more. But uh, I would say, you know, essentially, um, it's, uh, if that has occurred, I mean, if this is the kind of problem that you have, I think, well, sadhu is a good problem to have. <laughs> uh, but uh, I would say that um, that kind of uh, natural virtue, so that if uh, a child who, uh, if they are uh, with their friends and their friends are sort of uh, have caught an animal, they've, they've trapped a bird or something, or they are, and they they want to torture it, so, uh, someone who's already realised stream entry in a, in a previous lifetime, they would be recoiling from that. They go, "How can you do that? Don't do that. Stop that. That's horrible. How, you know, that's a terrible thing to do." And they, or uh, <clears throat> or if they got drawn into to joining in with that, um, they would, it would be really painful and hard to remember. Like, oh, how could I have done that? That was awful. That's so sorry. I feel so sorry. Um, so a natural sense of virtue, uh, a kind of a, a love of, of goodness and kindness. Uh, also, I think the, um, the, the kind of, uh, come when, when there would be a coming into contact with certain principles of Dhamma, again, even if it wasn't put into Dhamma language, it was not you know, represented in, in Buddhist terminology, um, or just uh, uh, put into other religious terms or psychological or philosophical terms, that it would the basic principles of Dhamma would immediately make sense. Like, oh, that's right, that's true. Like, I wouldn't um, make any sort of uh, assumptions, but uh, so uh, Lumpur Sumato often has described how when he was in the U.S. Navy, which I think everyone would agree is unlikely to be a very um, supportive spiritual environment. Maybe U.S. Navy chaplains will object, so please excuse me if I'm being rude to the uh, U.S. Navy um, uh, spiritual services. But in the 1950s, when he was in the U.S. Navy, uh, um, he uh, was given a copy of uh, DT, a book of D.T. Suzuki's writings, and he uh, often mentioned in Dhamma talks how he just read uh, the first couple of paragraphs of uh, this D.T. Suzuki book about Zen Buddhism, and uh, he'd suddenly, he just suddenly realized, I'm a Buddhist. Oh, oh, I'm a Buddhist. Just It was immediately clear to him. He'd had no contact with Buddhism before. He was quite a devout Christian when he was growing up, he even thought of becoming a Christian minister in the uh, Episcopalian church in, in Seattle. I think he even had a meeting with a bishop to, sort of, to, to talk about possibly going into a, a Christian seminary, um, but uh, had too many doubts. But then reading D.T. Suzuki there, you know, in, in his um, uh, role in, the, in the, the U.S. Navy as a medic, just two paragraphs and, oh, I'm a Buddhist. Oh, right, that makes sense. So that kind of uh, immediate affinity with, uh, with Dhamma teachings, I would say, would be part of it. So... Uh, that kind of, uh, of recognition. So both in uh, uh, the, um, the sense of feeling at home with particular terminology or, or ideas, uh, or, uh, and then I would say particularly virtue, uh, that uh, if, uh, if you do something uh, harmful or, or you're, you're around people um, acting in, in cruel or dishonest or... or um, destructive ways, something in the heart recoils from that. 
So the, the Buddha used the image like a, if you, if an animal, of a sinew from a, a, an animal falls into a fire, if, as a, the, as it falls into the, the, the flame, it curls up and, and retreats from the, from the flame. He said in exactly the same way the heart recoils from unskillfulness. It just naturally withdraws and uh, innate, what they call hiriotapa or moral sensitivity, causes that sense of, oh, I, don't, I can't bear that. I don't, don't want to be near that. That's, that's so painful, so, so awful. Why, why would people want to do that? Uh, so without any kind of necessary, necessarily having a, a sort of a structure around it or a, um, a kind of a philosophy to back it up, um, there might be that, that natural sense. And, so, um, and, and similar to, to the Dalai Lama, you know, going back to that, that uh, um, uh, previous, uh, previous question of yours, um, that uh, I found my, my own mother was uh, my first spiritual teacher and exemplar, and exactly that kind of way that she was, she was, a, it was, she was a farmer, but she physically could not cause harm to any other living being. She made it very difficult to be a farmer. <laughs> I think it's one, probably one of the reasons why she married my dad was that, uh, uh, but uh, trying to be a farmer that, that never, uh, never takes life or, or looks after the well-being of every animal in, on the farm, uh, it was a, a lot of work and a lot of creatures she was looking after. But that's kind of uh, very. It was interesting hearing his holiness speaking because it was just so like uh, my own mother that uh, was endlessly helping everybody around, very unselfish and incredibly uh, kind and, and caring and, and thoughtful in many many ways. Never never worried about herself, but was always trying to to help others and uh, incredibly you know, reliable and um, and noble hearted. So that when, when I was growing up. Um, one of the things ever since, ever since I was a small child, you know, the um, uh, if she ever saw me doing anything around the the farm that was that was maybe harmful to another creature, or um, that uh, she uh, or, or the other local kids were doing, uh, she would say, you know, you're absolutely, you know, you, you you can't do that. You can't if they want to go out and shoot with their guns, you can't go with them, or you, you know, you're not allowed to shoot anything, not allowed to kill anything. And so that uh, when it was wasn't, it was really coming from her heart. Like you shouldn't do that. It's terrible. Just, just don't do that. Don't do that, because she really felt that sense of empathy with other living beings. And so, I felt very blessed to have that uh, kind of inheritance from her, also of a, a great respect for, for other living beings and and the the kind of nurturing principle. Even just before she died, uh, um, that she literally was sort of, was in the process of dying. Um, and I think it was about less than a month before she died, uh, she was sort of laid up, she had pa uh, cancer of the pancreas, and um, it was in the middle of the summer, it was, this, uh, it was this, uh, this kind of season, June, July, and there was a sudden rainstorm in the night, and there hadn't been rain for quite a while, and so she's lying there in the middle of the night, it's about one o'clock in the morning, and she suddenly realized that, that with this rain would be bringing on all the, the snails would come in and start you know, eating all her favorite plants. So she was, she literally sort of climbs out of her bed with, you know, she's got less than a month to live, climbs out of her bed, so sort of puts on a raincoat, goes out into the middle of the storm and is picking snails off her, off her babies <laughs> in the garden. And, and, not, and she wouldn't kill them, she would just invite them to go and live over the other side of the fence. 
And, and so that, uh, that was a kind of character that, uh, you know, wonderful example of caring and thoughtfulness that, uh, yeah, that uh, in the middle of the night she's dying of cancer, but she's still, oh, my plants, oh dear, those, the snails are going to get them. Uh, come on, have that. And she's you know, out in a rainstorm in her nightie in a, in a raincoat in the middle of the night. You know, she, she was blind, she couldn't see. So she's also, she's in the dark. <laughs> Nighttime, where she's got macular degeneration, so she couldn't see. So she's trying to find the, the snails with her, her bright torchlight in the middle of the night in the rainstorm. Wouldn't stop her. She wouldn't. She wouldn't sort of think, "This is really stupid. I can't. I can't see what I'm doing." But just that urge to to prevent the uh, the uh, precious plants being being eaten up. She would motivate her. So I feel that um, that kind of love of the good that kind of, of cherishing life and the, um, the profound respectfulness, not coming from a place of theory, but really coming from the heart is uh, the kind of qualities that will, will be there in a, someone who's spiritually evolved. Okay, next one. Are there any tips and tricks monastics use when practicing how to stay mindful, present all the time? Is that possible? I'm a pretty calm person and can deal well with the challenges of life but not all the time. How do I practice with the things that still trigger me? I would appreciate your advice best. Um, well, the first thing I would say is it kind of depends on what triggers you. You know, that uh, are you um, uh, an intellectual? Are you a cook? Are you a dancer? Are you a parent? Are you a, 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 school, a school student? Are you in a... Uh, a, uh, a retirement home? Um, are you a scientist? Are you a, a musician? Uh, uh, what, we all get stuck in different ways on different things. We get, we get carried away. So somebody um, who's an academic, um, where they get lost might be when they see somebody has published a paper on, on their own theme and has um, uh, said something completely you know, wrong and deceptive, or they've stolen your idea. And you might get really lost in that. As someone who's a cook has no interest in academic publications, but they really care about food and recipes and, and um, such like. So first thing is to see where we get lost and uh, to see the results of getting lost you know, and that sense of, of uh, um, the, um, uh, the the kind of non-personal appreciation of the painful results of attachment. So and I, I often talk about this um, in terms of uh, trying to make it as wordless as possible so that you, you get lost in something, you get carried away, you get caught up, and then um, when you, you get caught up, you get carried away, you get really angry because someone's stolen your idea in the publication or that um, you were trying to get the souffle right and it's collapsed again. Um, because of that damn oven, um, and so you, know, you get upset, you get angry. So then, if we are not handling that skillfully, then we'll we'll take it very personally. I'm an angry person. I'm so stupid. It's only food. It's only a publication, or uh, whatever the the domain might be. Um, and then we go into self-hatred, or say, okay, in the future, I'm definitely, I'm never going to do that again. I absolutely swear, I'm going to have this, this sort of, uh, uh, this sort of reinvigorate my spiritual life, and I'm absolutely determined, I'm never going to do that again. It's a real problem, and I've got to get rid of it. And if I can get rid of it, then everything will be fine. So these are ways that, with a good intention, 
we make it personal. It's my problem that I've, uh, I'm guilty of. I've, uh, I cause all kinds of trouble to myself and other people because of this. So the more that, even if it's well-intentioned, the more we make it me and mine, and I have got this real problem, or I, I get lost with this real thing, then that reifying compounds, that, that making it real and making it personal compounds the dukkha, the, the suffering and the alienation, the, the stress that comes from it. So the, the, the um, most helpful thing is to develop what's called hiriotapa, or, or moral sensitivity, uh, and to, to let that be as wordless as possible, so that when you've got lost in some kind of state, you've got excited about something, you've got irritated or worried, to, to look at that feeling, uh, that having lost it, and trimming away all of the self-creation around it, and to say, okay, how does it feel having got lost in that, that excitement, or that fear, or that aversion, how does this feel? And the more it's, the, there can just be a wordless ow, ow, and just leave it at that, just feeling the painfulness of having uh, got lost. That, uh, that has the, the most profound and direct effect, at least I find. Uh, it's not complicated by all that self-creation around it, it's just the, the painful uh, results of having followed that they speak for themselves, it's, it's a non-verbal language. And so one of the, the teachings that Lumpur Cha often would give is to say, until you really know the pain of attachment, you won't let go. And so that uh, uh, having the presence of mind to recognize when we got lost, where, wherever it is that we get lost, to notice that, and when the, the mind does get stuck in that, to let that to be as fully and completely be felt let it be really known, sort of in a bone-deep way, like, ow. And then you don't even have to say, why do, I, why do I want to do this to myself? Or why do I keep doing this to myself? Why do I keep crashing the same car, as David Bowie put it, I think? <laughs> why do we keep crashing in the same car? Um, you don't even have to think that, because the pain, the painfulness, is what teaches. That's, that's how we learn. It's like if you put your hand in a flame, but you don't have to say, oh, that's hot. You can add the words, but you've already felt it and your hand is withdrawn. So that's one thing. Uh, another uh, a way of, of sustaining mindfulness is um, just uh, the, the four foundations of mindfulness themselves, but uh, to and particularly developing mindfulness of the body, because that's also a, a more of a wordless language whereby if you are excited or you are, um, then <clears throat> the mind is entranced by something that we, 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 look, we want to look at or we want to taste or we want to hear. And then if we develop a mindfulness of the body, then even when the mind says, oh, this is good, I want more of it, if you bring attention into the body, there can be the recognition of, oh, this is quite uncomfortable, or like, oh, <laughs> I can hardly breathe here, or oh, this, is, this is quite hard work. And so that, that helps to balance things out. Uh, similarly, um, to give a counterpoint to the thing that you're worried about, or you're excited about, or you're angry about, or uh, you're possessive of, that the, the just feeling and knowing uh, the uh, somatic quality, the, the, the felt sense of that engagement, that helps to, uh, and, and often the stressfulness, even of something that's called pleasant, being really lost in a, in a pleasant object 
uh, just to bring the attention into the body, it, it kind of spoils the whole chemistry. It's like, well, <laughs> this is hard work, or oh, this, is, this is quite painful, or this is really uncomfortable. Uh, and that can help to balance things out. Similarly, if we get angry or really uh, uh, upset, just feeling how that anger sits in the body and recognizing, oh, this is, this is tense, this is tight, this is really hot, heavy, and this is painful. Why do I, and again, we don't have to think, why do I want to do this to myself? But just acknowledging that the stressing in the body helps it to, to let go. And then the last thing I would say is um, uh, making a, a, a project out of it. For um, uh, if there's a particular area where you see that you get lost, then to make a project of it. So, okay, for this month or this six months or this year, I, I see I have a, a, a strong habit of following this desire, this kind of addiction to this pleasant experience. I call it pleasant. Or I get really angry with my neighbors and I'm always complaining about my neighbors or... Um, or I'm really, I'm worrying about things, I'm always worried. So, make a project of it. So, okay, there's this a complaining habit, or this desire habit, or this, this worrying habit. Um, uh, uh, and so, to make a, a, a kind of demarcation, to establish a demarcation and say, okay, this is my project for this month or this year. I really want to look at this this habit. So, in a, in the morning sitting every day, to make a clear and conscious resolution and aditana. So, okay, during today, whenever the mind moves towards this desire object or moves towards this uh, this aversion, this complaining, this this worry, then I'll consciously notice that. Be aware of the mind going in that direction. Feel the the aspects of it in the body, and to be aware of that, and to let the body respond with with relaxing, with letting go. And uh, it gets it takes a little while to get into the program, <laughs> but after a time, it uh, it can be extremely helpful. To say, okay, well, there's all sorts of other things to be paying attention to, or kinds of practice to develop. But I'm just going to make this my uh, my kind of. Uh, my theme for this period of time. And so that conscious flagging, uh, kind of whenever those states arise, that can also have a very, very helpful effect. Next one. Dear Ajahn Amaro, a question for your Sunday Q&A. How can I be sure that Buddhism isn't just another ism and that talk of it being otherwise isn't just rhetoric? Many thanks. Um, so <clears throat> many years ago, uh, when I lived here in the 80s and 90s, um, there was an invitation to a local uh, grammar school, Watford Boys Grammar School, and Ajahn Sajito was living here at the time, so he was uh, he was invited uh, to give a talk, and I went along with him to this uh, this boys' school. And uh, so we, we got out of the vehicle and we were ushered straight into the assembly hall. There was about 700 boys in their school uniforms. So we just sort of saunter out onto the stage and get ourselves settled down. And then this very um, confident young lad strides up and says, what is Buddhism? And, uh, and this is uh, one of those moments where I felt deep admiration for Ajahn Sujito and his, his wisdom because without missing a beat, he said, Buddhism is a word. It's a word made up of two parts, bud and ism. <laughs> The bud means awake, that which is aware, and uh, that is the, the real heart 
of uh, the religion. The ism is everything else around it. The customs, the traditions, the robes, the stories, the, the scriptures, and such like. Uh, and I was, uh, it was a long time ago, it was probably about 1990, so 30 years ago. But I, I was so impressed um, with <laughs> his kind of, well, not just his quickness of thinking, but also the beautifully appropriate answer. Because with, with religions, the attention tends to go to the ism. And that's all of the, the language, the customs, the robes, the forms, the, the, um, the structures that go with it. But without the Bud, then the ism is empty, you know, just as with, with any other kind of religious form or any sort of, uh, say, kind of belief, uh, belief system of any sort, whether it's secular or, or religious. And so in response to this question, um, how can I be, how can you be sure? Uh, well, <laughs> that's up to you. <laughs> but uh, the, uh, the more that the attention is focused on the Bud, being awake in this moment, say, knowing that in this very moment, listening to uh, uh, the, this webcast on a Sunday, Sunday afternoon here in the UK, that this is uh, an array of perceptions, sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, arising, passing away, that is known in this moment. The mind, the heart can be awake to that field of experiencing. And the, the more that the, 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 the kind of uh, embodiment of that awake, aware quality is actualized, then the more then there is the, the genuine uh, religious spiritual process that's the the heart of the religion that is established um, and the, the the ism is all the kind of things that support that like sitting here in this temple this temple is a part of the ism <laughs> Amravati this chair you know there's these robes uh, my my role as a monk that's all part of the the ism but uh, the more that we uh, say learn to use and embody and to actualize that quality of, of being awake then it, it, uh, its value speaks for itself. You know, it's a, um, uh, it can be verified, the value of the teaching or the value of being awake can be verified, like as I was, uh, as I was saying about the Kalama Sutta um, uh, earlier on this afternoon. Uh, a couple of days ago I was talking about how, how uh, again, about religious tradition and attachment and, and, uh, and, re and sort of reliance on teachers and uh, uh, in many of his uh, his Dhamma talks, uh, Ajahn Sumedha would say how when he was a, a young bhikkhu, a young monk at, at Wat Papong with Ajahn Chah, you know, he would he would sort of test himself. He said, "Well, I I really like being a monk and I like practicing, but yeah, am I am I dependent? I love Ajahn Chah. I think he's the greatest. He's the wisest person in the world. And yeah, am I just attached to him? Uh, uh, how how well grounded in the practice am I? Where, where does my faith?" My confidence really lie, and he's often mentioned how he did this thought experiment with himself, and he said, "Okay, so if if Ajahn Chah um, announced to the Sangha one day, um, I'm fed up with monastic life, and I'm going to get married to this 16-year-old girl from the village, and um, you know, I'm, so I'm going to be taking off, you know, have a nice life, what would that do to my mind? If Ajahn Buddhadasa said uh, made an announcement." Uh, Buddhism is a farce, Christianity is the way, Jesus is my Lord and Saviour, and so I'm going to go and be a, a, a Christian. What would that do to my mind? If the Dalai Lama joined the Communist Party, 
and uh, gave up on, on Buddhism. Said, so, you know, uh, dialectical socialism is is the way, and uh, the uh, the kind of um, uh, uh, the history and the, the the knowledge of Buddhism is all a waste of time. What would I do? What would that do to my mind? All my spiritual heroes, if they all uh, bailed out in in those various different ways. And he he said uh, uh, when he did that experiment, he brought, brought those concepts to mind. He realized, he realized, well, I would just put my robes on, go out on arms round in the morning, practice meditation, sit, walk, sweep leaves, carry water. What else is that to do? I would just carry on with the practice because you know, I, I know it has value for myself. So it's not whatever these other people do, it's their business. But uh, I, uh, I see that it has uh, values from my own direct knowledge. And, and the way that Lumpur Sumedho describes it, it was, it was almost like he was kind of surprised at his own confidence. Oh, well, that's good. <laughs> kind of pleased to discover that he wasn't as dependent on Lumpur Cha as, as he thought he was. But uh, it was also that, yeah, he'd seen how the practice works for himself. And, and uh, a, a number of years ago, when I, as, again, when I was living here in the 80s and early 90s, I remember him giving a Dhamma talk. Um, this was before the temple was built. It was over in, in the sala. One, one, uh, one day he was giving a Dhamma talk. And he said, you know, if it was discovered beyond a shadow of a doubt that Buddhism was, was completely made up by uh, you know, a Hungarian shaman in the 14th century uh, and the whole thing was a total fraud and that uh, this, this guy in Hungary had, had somehow managed to write all the Buddhist scriptures and sprinkle them over Asia so that later explorers uh, and colonials would discover them uh, and uh, the, the whole thing was just a, a, a fix-up. Um, still, uh, uh, even if he'd invented the Four Noble Truths on a sort of a drunk night out with his mates, um, and, uh, and yet, if that was the case, would that negate the, the, the value of the Four Noble Truths as I have experienced them, as I've worked with them? And, it was, and you know, Lumpur can be very imaginative, so we were all sitting there thinking, oh, like a Hungarian shaman in the 14th century, okay. wonder where that came from. <laughs> but uh, he, he could very easily go into these wonderful imaginative riffs. But he said, so even if it was made up uh, and it was, a, it was all a, a fraud, does the fact, even though it might have begun as a fraud and made up in the Middle Ages, does that negate the fact that the Four Noble Truths has been valuable and has produced insight and genuine uh, realizations of, of truth in, in this life, in this mind? And he said, well, he, uh, uh, when he would think things through in that way, or explore it in that way, he said, yeah, wherever it came from, I don't care because these teachings work, they have value. So it's, it, doesn't, uh, it doesn't depend on the reliability of the Pali Canon, or it doesn't depend on these particular words or, or, or kind of forms of expression. But by taking these principles and applying them, you can see, you can know directly through this life, this mind, that these have a, a worth, have a value. So that's what the, the Buddha called uh, being independent of others in this in this dhamma and, and discipline, in this in this uh, sasana, in this in this training. So that uh, if one wants to be sure, <laughs> you want to be sure about the the, the Buddha. Are always uh, satisfactory that any sankara, sabe sankara dukkha, all all conditioned things, all conventions and, and constructions are necessarily unsatisfactory. 
They can't, they can't, they're, they're incomplete or inconsistent. They're, they're sankharas, they're in a constant state of change. They, they can't permanently satisfy sabe, sankara, dukkha. All sankharas, all compounded things are unsatisfactory. That's their, their nature. So we're not looking for satisfaction in that which can't satisfy. You're not looking for completion in the world of sankharas. But the, 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 the kind of amazing and miraculous thing about, say, the, the teaching of the Four Noble Truths is that the words of the Four Noble Truths are sankharas, they're formations. But applied in, the, in a skillful way, then they can bring about the realization, the direct knowing and embodying of the asankata, the unconditioned, the unformed, the uncreated. And that's the, the kind of miracle of, uh, of instruction, is that even though the words and the forms are limited, dependent, contingent, and uh, so conditionally, uh, say, uh, created, they can, if they're applied in a skillful way, they can lead to that direct embodiment and realization of the, the uncreated. So a couple more. Ajahn Amaro, hello and thanks for the teachings which I have returned to during lockdown. I recently heard a talk in which you shared your experience with intoxication, booze, as a 20-something. I have had a long relationship with seeking escape from uncomfortable thoughts into sense pleasure. I stopped drinking for over 10 years and began exploring Buddhist ideas, meditation and retreats. But, exclamation mark, I think I was born angry, exclamation mark. Eventually I drank again for relief. I've been in this start-stop situation for six years and it's becoming quite a long road at 58. Question is possibly, how can I make friends with my cynical and mistrusting disposition when it rears its ugly head to allow me to settle in life and be more useful to myself and others? How can I make friends with my cynical and mistrusting disposition when it rears its ugly head to allow me to settle in life and be more useful to myself and others? Well, a good question. I feel very um, sympathetic, empathetic for how things are. One of the reasons why I, I was very happy to be in a monastery was, it was I knew that I couldn't be tempted to drink anymore <laughs> since I, I'd gone sober at my 21st birthday. And... Uh, I entered the monastery about four months later, and so I thought, okay, this is good people to be with. I'm the kind of personality, I'm very affected by the kind of people that I'm with, so if I'm around a lot of drinkers and party animals, then I would be drinking and partying. So moving in with a bunch of, uh, of Buddhist monks was a really good way to make sure I was not putting myself in harm's way or not putting temptation in my path. And I make no secret about that, that uh, I feel that was uh, extremely, um, uh, I feel extremely grateful, I was extremely fortunate that I came across the monastic tradition at that time. Um, I think uh, maybe going back to that um, comment I made to one of the previous questions, say, to be more of a friend to your, um, uh, make friends with my cynical and mistrusting disposition, um, that... uh, that quality of open-heartedness and so when there's that urge to to escape to want to to switch off or to forget to 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 get away from it to to um to try as to the extent possible to open the heart to those sort of frustrated uh, insecure um and cynical as you as you call it teachings not to pretend that they're not there but to make friends to so to to uh 
to not try and make yourself like the unlikable or make excuses for it, but just to have that open-heartedness that recognizes here it is, ow, <laughs> you know, here's that, that urge again, that this ugly, restless, uh, uh, kind of destructive feelings, here they are, it's like this. And to, to the degree to which one can have metta, like a, a real radical acceptance of uh, those feelings uh, and to, to not react against them, not just to run away and switch off. Um, and so that part of it, what I was saying earlier about recognizing the pain of attachment, just, you know, yes, this is painful, but what, what's the result of trying to switch off? Or I, I know where this went to the last 150 times, so let's remembering where that went to, and not just as a concept, but in a way that the body memory, and that's why I was saying how it's so much more helpful just to let it be a wordless recognition of the pain that comes from following those impulses. Not to say I'm a terrible person, I went out and got drunk again, I'm really useless, I can never get away from this. To, to, to leave the verbiage aside and just to let the, the, the painfulness of having got lost um, speak for itself. And the other part of it, uh, with, uh, which is a major aspect of AA and 12-step programs, is friendship. You know, draw close, even through a Zoom, <laughs> you know, draw as close as you can through social, uh, social distancing um, to good people. And like I said, you know, I was very happy to move into a monastery where no one's drinking any alcohol, and no one, there's, no, there's no drug taking, and there's not even any supper. Um, so it was a it was great environment, really simple, harmless environment to be in. So to the extent possible, draw close to people who stop drinking. Join a twelve-step program, or, or draw close to people in AA. Kind of sign up, and uh, don't be shy with those kind of things because companionship is really the good companionship is the, the primary way that ignorance is deprived of its fuel. It's the the way we uh, we put the odds in our favor, as it were. Like, uh, in the, in the, um, uh, the Mangala Sutta, when the Buddha describes the, the highest blessings, uh, the, this long list of, of blessings that he, he goes through, the first uh, of the blessings are, asevana chabalanang panditanang chasevana, not to associate with fools, but to associate with the wise. This is the highest blessing. So, to, to the degree possible, drawing away from people who like to drink and draw close to people who've stopped drinking. Um, just uh, to the degree we, we can make choices, make those choices, and to set, set things in place that are, are gonna be making things easier for you. Um, uh, as they, yeah, uh, uh, as it is said, you know, if you, if, you, if, you, if you go to the pub, sooner or later you're gonna have a drink. <laughs> But uh, if you go to the beach, sooner or later you're going to get you're going to get sand between your toes. You know, it's like that's the nature of the beach. <laughs> if you if you are around people who like to drink, sooner or later you're going to start drinking. So try to associate with people who who stop that, who are trying to, uh, and then particularly in organisations like AA or twelve step programs, that uh, people who have the same intention or the same aspiration uh, to to draw away from that, and uh, and then also. In those times where you have restrained yourself and you haven't followed those impulses, uh, the other part of it is to consciously recognize how good it feels. And for myself, I've, I've used this a lot to say, uh, oh, this particular destructive or, or selfish impulse that hasn't been followed for the last month or, or six months. Or, uh, 
how does that feel? Just look in your heart, not to be proud or conceited, but to recognize, that's great, I feel good. Wow, look, nothing to regret. Yes, that tastes good. It's like fresh air or you know, nice, cool, clean water when you're thirsty. Oh, yeah, good, this tastes good. So sometimes we can get so focused on the problem and the painful aspects of the problem, we don't notice the, the, the alternative. And just to acknowledge, okay, this is what it feels like to not be pulled by that, to be having a, a mind that has no interest in distracting itself in that way. How does this feel? Oh, again, not to be making a lot of verbiage around it or getting lost in words and ideas, but just to... to to feel the nature of the chitta when it's free of addiction, it's free of those compulsions. How does it feel? And just letting that quiet, spacious, bright normality speak for itself. And the last one. Dear Ajahn Amaro, if you don't mind a personal question, after all these years as a monk, what keeps you going? Is it the love for the teaching, or the desire for enlightenment, the support of the Sangha, all of the above? And how do you manage those times when there is no energy, will or faith to keep going? Um, it's an interesting question because I never think of it in those terms. Because uh, it's, uh, I saw this question earlier on today and I thought well, it's rather like going out to the I'm not trying to make any claims or anything, but rather like going out to the sky and saying, how do you keep going? Or, or, or talking to the rain, saying, how do, how do you keep raining? It's like, <laughs> but I don't really see any alternative to, uh, to um, practicing Dhamma, because what else is there to do? It's like, the, where can you go, really? What, what else is there to do? I... I my career of, of heavy drinking up to the age of 20 was trying to switch it off. <laughs> and uh, I often mention how I had a, an epiphany here in Hemel Hempstead. I was at a, a friend's 21st birthday party. And uh, she, she was at drama school and uh, was very, uh, very much in the sort of theatre and, and uh, decorative uh, performing arts world. But she was also um, a, a non-drinker, never used dr drugs or, or alcohol. So she uh, had this 21st birthday party and she got some, some drinks in for those um, people who were coming to the party who, who were drinkers and, and consumers. And, but she herself and most of her friends were just sort of into music and dancing and, and uh, such like. So, uh, you know, so I arrived and then, uh, and had my first thought was, oh, you know, <laughs> lots for me. And, uh, this was, I was about 20, so it was before my own 21st birthday party. So I adopted this bottle of, and this isn't an advert, but it was Teacher's Highland Cream, a full bottle of, of scotch. And during the course of this evening, uh, I, I drank most of it. Uh, there was about an inch or an inch and a half from the bottom of this bottle of scotch. And, um, and I realized I still don't feel good. I wasn't, I, I was kind of fuzzy, but you know, a pint of scotch will do that to you. But I was a pretty serious drinker, so even having consumed a pint of scotch, um, I wasn't sort of falling over drunk, I was just sort of a bit blurry. But I, I also, it hadn't got me to that uh, that you know, good place where everything is everything feels great. I was still me, <laughs> still me, and my anxieties and my uh, feelings of alienation and insecurity. And I and I was, I was sitting there, 
and I looked at the the, um, the the little bit of scotch in the bottom of the bottle, and I thought, this is a waste of good scotch. Yeah, I've I've drunk a pint of this stuff, and I'm still not there. Still, it doesn't make any difference. I can't drink enough to get to that place where everything feels good anymore. It, it doesn't. The medicine doesn't work anymore. I've just become inured to it, and um, so that uh, uh, in a way, it was like that. That was where I kind of gave up on the idea of not not keeping going. <laughs> if that makes sense, the. Uh, and that um, the uh, I don't see pra practicing dhamma or meditating or being a monk as a, a as a sort of a, as a, a job or a task or a thing that you can really move away from because reality still is what it is. You can't you can try and distract yourself, but it, it's basically unavoidable, like gravity or or the the sun and the moon. It's like it keeps on going. Nature keeps on on going. It's whether you like it or not. Uh, but I also I appreciate that not everybody else thinks this way, and uh, uh, so. The, but this kind of when I first went into the monastery, this kind of hit me. Yeah, this and that uh, I was um, that uh, you know, basically you couldn't avoid reality, and that, uh, it, that so the thing to do was tr rather than trying to switch off or distract yourself was to to face it to to face towards it to open the heart to it and then and that uh, and. Uh, see that that was, and to uh, realize, to, to know uh, that in truth that was the way to to, to happiness and freedom. And uh, so I had been, been considering these issues a lot. Uh, and uh, I remember in the first few weeks I was at Wat Nanachat, there was two novices there, two young Thai novices, Boom and Bam. And uh, Bam was a very kind of innocent, uh, completely sort of gentle um, uh, open-hearted, sweet, uh, sweet kid. They were both teenagers, and, and but uh, um, Boom was a bit more of a hard case. Who'd been sort of sent to the monastery by his parents because he was a bit difficult to deal with at home. And um, and uh, Boom had a little bit of English. Uh, Bam didn't have any at all. And then one day, because uh, I was a I was an Anagarika at that time, and and one day, uh, novice uh, novice. Boom turned to me and said, and I think he was quoting the, the song by the animals. He said, I've got to get out of this place. So it was interesting he'd learned that much English. <laughs> I've, got to, I've got to get out of this place. And in all sincerity, I looked at him and I said, where can you go? Where is there to go? Because for me, for me, even though I was only a few weeks in the monastery, it was like nobody can really go anywhere because you're always here. Your mind is always where you are. So you can change the backdrop, you can have a beach or a city or a, a Europe or Thailand, but really, you can't go anywhere. And he gave me this look like, you farangs are nuts. <laughs> you can go to Bangkok, you can go to Sisaket, you can go to yeah, anywhere, anywhere but here. Yeah, anywhere but what Nanachat. But to, to me, it was, that was kind of like, the mind is where we live. You can't, you can't get away from it. You can fill it with objects to, to create bit, a bit more distraction, but you can't really get away from it because you are it. It's like trying uh, to, to get away from your own shadow. It's like, no matter how hard you run, it'll always be <laughs> right there at your feet, <laughs> as long as there's a light source. So, uh, I'm not meaning to be disrespectful of your question, but um, uh, uh, I feel it's, uh, in a way, what, what else is there to do? <laughs>
How can it's like when people say, oh, "I really like being in nature." My my first the thing that comes to mind is, well, where, where else could you be? You know, how could you get away from nature? You are nature. You know, what aspect of your body and mind is not part of nature? Well, and what they mean is, I like to be away from human constructions and in amongst the trees and and such like. You know, and part of me knows that, but also part of the mind is is say, well, how could you? How can you not be connected to nature? You you are nature. Every aspect of your your being is part of the natural order. You can't get away from it. So, in terms of Dhamma practice, or what we call practicing, is to, uh, being more and more aware of the fact that you are nature, you, you are that, and that the adherence to me and my personality, my life, my choices, is just a, a sort of superficial um, a seeming, and that it can look like that, but uh, in a way, it's rather like say, a wave saying to another wave, um, I'm fed up with the sea, I'm going somewhere else. Like, <laughs> where can you go? You, know, you are the sea. You know, it's like, you know, it's, it's not really uh, up for discussion, if that makes sense. Um, and so that uh, I don't really see it in terms of keeping going. Um, and that uh, certainly I'm, I'm the abbot of a monastery and, and uh, I follow the, uh, the discipline and the routines and such like. And it can look as though you know, I am uh, running a thing or, or making choices to stay with this. But um, in, internally, I, I, to be honest, I don't, I don't see it that way. I don't, I don't think of, of it as, uh, as a sort of keeping going or that there's any alternative. It's like the, the earth keeps turning the... The the the, uh, the natural order, the natural order keeps functioning. Where, where is there to go? What else is there to do apart from embody that reality? Um, and that uh, that uh, in a way, the what we call practicing dhamma is is surrendering self view, surrendering self concern, and more and more completely embodying the fact that you know the mind is dhamma. The uh, the the mind is nature. The the body is nature. This is uh, it's never been anything other than that. So it's uh, in a way the the wave waking up to the fact that it's always just part of the sea and was always in a state of uh, of uh, transformation. And that the 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 impression of of individuality and making personal choices um, and those being some kind of somehow absolutely distinct from other things, other people. Uh, uh, it was just a, an appearance, just just a seeming, just a, a surface, a superficial view. So I will leave it there for uh, this week. And once again, to remind people that uh, next Sunday will be the last of the Q and A sessions. I'm not inviting a whole flood of extra questions, so don't feel compelled. But uh, uh, that uh, uh, that'll be also Asala Puja, the full moon day of, uh, of July this year, and uh, so it'll be the um, the the uh, also the uh, just the beginning of the rains retreat, and that uh, starts uh, from the day after for the next three months, and we'll have the Sunday afternoon uh, themed talks from that time on. <laughs>